Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, everyone? Austin, what's new, man? I've been uh, outside of real estate. I've been bumping that new Kendrick Lamar CD. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in the mood to do this preamble right now because that's all I've been listening to. But that also says when we are recording this because it's Friday and the album just came out today. <laughs> last minute as it gets. Yeah, sometimes we're really good with like recording preambles and sometimes we're just like an absolute shit show but how's your week a lot of the right? times it's a shit show it's it's good um things have been slowing down a uh, couple of things that i'm working on that is more of a headache than anything so first and foremost our refinance for our eight unit Dejardin wanted us to it's very weird Dejardin's like the credit is getting a lot tighter because of what's going on in the market and so on title of the properties, Fast Ontario Home Buyer, which is our wholesaling business. Like we just did it. We're wholesaling it, but then just decided to close on it ourselves. Didn't assign it to our holding corp or anything. Like obviously a mistake. But um, when Dejardin takes a look at the asset, they're actually qualifying our business and then the asset, <laughs> which is, it's odd, right? It's, it's very odd because usually you qualify the building um, and they don't have the risk appetite to lend on our sort of business, despite whatever our financials are because of what's happening in the market. So they're like, we don't want to lend on it. However, if you move it over to a holding corp, we're okay with that. I was like, that's not bad. Yeah. But I was like, that's like dumber. That's even more riskier for you guys. It's not, it's not like you guys are rising. (laughs) Like you have a cash flow business like backing it up, right? Like you're lending on the property owned by a cash flow business. Instead, you want it to be lent on a fucking a corp that has like no assets in it, right? Um, that I don't really yeah. understand. It's true, but I guess like all your creditors, any kind of like liabilities, any like employees, any like buyers, sellers, et cetera, could all like, it, it, you, you really should separate the asset, right? Because then you talk about liability and like asset protection, man. I was listening to... Uh, a bigger pockets uh, podcast like a couple of weeks ago, they had this guy on that was like all about asset protection and how like in the whole crisis and like through syndication and stuff like that, like you're able to like hide your assets and protect it from any kind of liability. And I was like, oh, that's like, that's really, funny. yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense because then that would mean the corp is, um, it doesn't have anything to go after. Yeah. So from the liability point of view, cool makes sense, but it's not even the liability point of view I'm talking about. It's like, I don't understand their lending criteria yeah. as well. Like, but what, whatever. So what we're doing is we spoke to our private lender. I gave him the heads up because obviously they'd be made aware that the title switch is happening. I was like, look, look, we'll still personally guarantee it, blah, 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 blah. We just need to put a refinance. So we're working on that. That's put us back like at least a month long because now we got to transfer and then start refinancing again. Um, that's one thing. Our Airbnb in Sudbury is doing well. So after that, like, that prick left who, uh, <laughs> yeah, from oh, the story yeah. last time he dipped, um, he got a medical note saying that there were bugs and, and all of that. Um, like he got a bug, no, that not, there were bugs that he got a bug bite and he showed a photo. But I was like, I don't know where you got bug bite from. It could be anywhere. 
Um, anyways, we got a new guest in there for a week and not a single peep from them. So obviously like there was, <laughs> I don't know if he was being super truthful, but our entire June is almost not June. Sorry. May is pretty much booked up. Like everyone's booking last minute for a week long, um, like three days long, four days long. So, uh, it's going pretty well. So we're going to launch our other Airbnb soon. And that's everything. That's everything on my end, really. Um, wholesaling is definitely like there, there's less demand out there, but that's to be expected. If I report on it every week, it's going to be the same thing. Less demand, less demand, less demand. (laughs) As long as there's negative buyer sentiment out there, that's just the reality of not even wholesaling, real estate buying and selling period. Um, how about you, man? What's, what's everything? Uh, I was not going to say what's everything saying, what's everything going? Not what's yeah, like, going. I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I, I, like on the mortgage side, I still have. I'm looking at the last like four deals that I submitted this month, and like it's all like purchases, right? So like people are definitely taking advantage of the market as well because you've got. Here, here's the thing: if you're a first time home buyer, it really makes no difference, right? Now, well, it makes a little bit of a, of a difference, sure, but you're ultimately going to be in it for the long run. It's a house you're going to live in. It doesn't really make a whole lot of difference as long as the monthly expense for you is something that's reasonable, right? Um, right now, like me and Austin, we, we were both looking at um, the same property, oddly enough, from like a wholesale email. Um, that would be a great flip candidate, right? The only reason I'm not is because I'm waiting uh, for our flip to sell it to close. So I'm waiting to see what goes on there. Um, and on that topic, I guess we're finally exiting the, the Prince Edward County flip. Um, we'll see how much that goes for, but um, don't want to talk a whole lot about it until it actually sells. And other than that, man, I'm, I'm finally able to redirect some attention back to um, the Kirkland Lake Nineplex. Like that one was just kind of sitting on the sidelines. I wasn't really paying much attention to it, but now I'm like, you know what, I might as well get this done and, and get, get my cash out of it, right? So yeah. Um, yeah, it's a time for really just cleaning up shop. I think just wait and yeah. see a lot of opportunity uh, and how we'll are things what... on the mortgage side of things? Have you noticed a slowdown? And I've heard actually quite a bit, like I was just speaking to a realtor yesterday. No one will be named, but there was a property and I shared it on my store. If you guys follow me that sold for, I want to say like 1.1 mil in, was it Clarington, which is an hour mm-hmm. from Toronto. And then right? it's like, how the fuck does a property an hour from Toronto sell for 1.1 mil? That just makes me scratch my head. But either way, yeah, sold for 1.1 mil. The buyer didn't close and then sold for 850. The realtor speaking to his buyer picked it up for 850. And the reason why the deal fell through is because it didn't appraise. And now the seller is suing the original buyer for the difference. And that's not the first time I've heard these stories. If you guys are on the Reddit forums, <laughs> I know why you are as well. You just got, it's like interesting to creep and see because yeah, everyone's yeah. there as a perma bear. <laughs> just yeah, I, I shared some stuff on my story once and it was yeah. from like the Reddit, Reddit thread. And someone's like, hey, hey, like, where do you go for like your, your real estate uh, data and articles and stuff? I'm like, bro, this is from Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Some of the bears are really well thought out. <laughs> but yeah. they're like, they're like selection bias on the data points. But either way, um, there's stories of that happening all of the time. And they're like, in all of these Facebook groups, like there was one for like newer immigrants. Um, I don't know. You <laughs> saw that, too, that man. right? I saw it too. <laughs> and they, they're in those groups and they screenshot it and they post like, oh, look, like a new immigrant just purchased the property, like, and they're going to not close on it, probably get sued. And it's just like a bunch of threads on these happening again and again and again. So it's like pretty interesting to see. Like, I think it was to be expected, but um, obviously that's not a great sign, right? Like a bunch of people are going to be getting sued. Appraisals are coming in 200K lower. People are scrambling to find the money for that. So there's already blood on the streets right now. So I think it's good for for me. I just want to exercise caution 
um, before I make any drastic moves, before I deploy a significant amount of capital into anything. Um, I'd rather play it safe than grow it aggressively because at this stage, like it's wealth preservation and steady growth. Kind of boring though, right? <laughs> it is, it is, but like it's, it's safe as long as I can sleep at night. <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to jump straight into the podcast. We have Zishan today. Zishan's uh, an amazing investor who quit his job before quitting a, your job was cool. And he went balls deep into real estate, started off buying a couple of single families in Windsor and just organically scaled into multifamilies and now buying big apartment buildings. Um, he's also a real estate coach in the multifamily space. So we get a bit into the coaching aspect of things as well. It's amazing to hear how little steps into your real estate journey, like buying these small little properties can catapult you into the big multifamily space, but it, you just need to have time and patience throughout this real estate journey. And Zchan is a great example of that. Um, you're going to enjoy this content, especially if you are in the intermediate stage of investing and looking to move into multifamilies. Make sure to tune in and give a five-star review as well. Hey everyone, we're joined with our very special guest, Zishan. Zishan, how's everything going, my man? Good, good. How are you guys? Doing well, man. Zishan, I mean, we know each other briefly, but for anyone that doesn't know you, why don't you give everyone kind of a quick background on yourself, um, your investment journey today, and kind of what you're up to? Yeah, for sure. So I'm to give you a background on how I got started, first of all. In real estate, um, pretty much started in 2016, 2017. Just kind of looking for a way out of the rat race, pretty much. I was, I was working... Um, bunch of entry level jobs, you know, finance jobs, admin jobs, and found myself not really interested in what I was doing. And like a lot of us just looking for like a way out. So essentially before we're going to get started in real estate, I was like trial and error and a bunch of different things, like, you know, just ways to make passive income or side income as I'm working. So I tried like, you know, trading, online businesses, network marketing, uh, just all different types of things, just trying to find something that I was interested in and also could like create additional income for me. So finally stumbled on real estate uh, just through like, you know, at that time there wasn't as much presence on social media. So you had to kind of seek knowledge elsewhere. Like I was just looking online and meetups and things like that. So I uh, came across a meetup um, where I was living in Markham at the time and uh, uh, got involved with that and that kind of like piqued my interest. And I kind of saw like, okay, if I did this, what they're telling me here, I could potentially I'll replace my income and, and do this full time. So, so yeah, when I, when I got started, I was just went to the most affordable area I could find because Windsor at the time, I'm sure you guys are well aware of that. Um, at that time, prices were like 80 to hundred thousand. So single family home, three bedroom, two bathroom, 80,000 to hundred thousand. So that's started buying properties. Like, you know, you really only needed about 10, 15 K to get started there. So I started buying uh, single family homes in Windsor as I was working. And then um, just kind of scaled that up, you know, passively on the side. I was doing it all wrong, obviously, just like getting fixed, fixed rate mortgages on those. Um, I didn't really know what the bird strategy, so bought up a bunch of those. And uh, eventually, I was like, this cash flow is pretty good. Like, and then eventually, when I started doing a little bit of renovations and refinancing, um, I realized that like one refinance pretty much placing entire salary for the year, right? Um, and not only that, each property at the time was a cash flowing like 800 to 1,000 bucks. You know, the mortgage was like 200 and the rent was like 12, 1300. So then I was like, you know what, I, maybe I should pursue this full time. Um, and that's when I kind of made the decision in 2019 to 
quit my full-time job. In the meantime, and like I was experimenting, I did invest in states as well as in flips in the states. I was like all over the place, different strategies, wholesaling. Um, but like I still found that the Windsor single family was still working well, right? And then from there, yeah, I uh, kind of learned about multifamily, and that's when things really took off. And I was like, let me just um, pursue this full time. I had a bunch of people that, you know, invested in Windsor with me at that time, like friends and family. So I was like, I could just manage these properties, create an active side of the business, move there. I was hacking in one of my duplex. Another rent was like, the mortgage was like 800. The lawyer was paying like 1450. Living cost was gone. Had the property management income, had the cash flow. I was like, you know what? I'll make it work uh, and start a multifamily acquisition business. That's amazing. So you actually got started investing in Windsor before the uptick, like right before things yeah. got hot. It was such a flat market prior to then. But you also took that risk of putting your full-time job and, and jumping into real estate full-time before it was common. Now I think like every other person is quitting their job over the past year. Um, but back then, like people would think you're crazy to leave your job. Um, just wanted to get further into your multifamily journey. Uh, when you got started in multifamily investing, was there any mentors or coaches that you looked up to, or were you just learning things yourself along the way? And could you walk us through your very first ever multifamily deal? Let's say greater than four units plus. Yeah, sure. Um, no, I was just kind of like trial and error, just like the same thing with the single families. I pretty much learned the basics of like, you know, just through online and books and whatnot for how they work, right? And the cap rate and the fundamentals of multifamily. And then from there, um, it's just like, price point was still relatively low, right? So um, wasn't taking on partners at that time. It was just strictly 100% sorry when was your when was your first multifamily 2019 okay 2019 that's when i quit my job and i um as i was quitting i i was you know working on some deals and then uh pretty much got into uh first property was a seven unit building seven unit mixed use okay. um so it was, it was two commercial and five residential still holding on to today um and i bought that actually you know what before that i did one of those um like a sixplex, um, which was, um, you know, like not, not purpose built, like it was one of those houses that was split at some point. Yeah. That was my first entry into it really. But, you know, I like to refer to the first one as really like a purpose built building. So I'll, I'll, I'll just talk seven unit. So yeah, I mean, uh, no, no real mentorship. So I just got started that which I still holding on to that property. It was a little bit slower burr than, than the ones I've done recently, but essentially bought it for five twenty. And yeah, 527 units at that time. And uh, yeah, so the value add was on the rents. It was all inclusive rents. Commercial units, leases were just firing. One commercial unit had been vacant for like three years. And the reason was because there wasn't enough parking and it wasn't, it wasn't on a street where there's demand for really commercial tenants. But one of our tenants was, like a, was a security company. So they were good. They were there locked in for years and years. But the other unit was vacant. I had trouble just getting it occupied. So I actually converted it to residential. So going through that whole rezoning process is definitely a pain. Like I wouldn't do it again. I've done it on other buildings as well, but that was another learning curve. But at the end of the day, like, you know, just renovating units and increasing the income and the property's worth probably around 1.1 right now. There's still some, a lot of few of the older tenants there, but through cash for keys and things like that, we've got a few of them out and, and turned over, but yeah. That, that so when we refinance that, we're able to get a two hundred k and use that to another property. Mm -hmm. It seems like you were very similar to me, where I just kind of jumped in and didn't do 
not that you didn't do a ton of due diligence, but you just kind of learned along the way of, of going through the process. I'm just curious though, what attracted you to that building, given that there's two commercial yeah. um, units there, especially in Windsor at that time. Like, obviously you hear that as like, Oh, like buying commercial in Windsor is not a, a great decision. Like you're going to have people who think that way. Um, especially if it's not in like a main strip, like Walkerville, what was your thought process then? And what did you learn uh, walking away from that seven unit? Cause I know there's also HST that applies for those, um, those commercial units. Like what are things that you weren't planning for and learn as you were going through that process? Yeah, definitely. Like at that time, you know, I was pretty much taking deals that were my realtor I was working with, so like preferred me to. I was like, you know what, this is a great area. I'm just trusting them at that time. And um, yeah, I mean, if doing that again, I probably would have went straight into 100% residential. But also, like at the same time, there is a lot of benefits for the commercial units as well. Um, right now, that's what I find. There's more opportunity there where there's more supply of those. And you are getting them at a slightly um, lower price point. But it was definitely a learning experience, you know, how commercial leases work. Um, you know, implanting like triple net lease, you know, or having them paying a portion of taxes, maintenance, insurance. Um, so that was a learning curve. And then the vacancy of the factor in for those trades, right? much more than residential. So I still buy mixed use um, just because I feel like there's more supply. Um, but then obviously you, you run into issues where, you know, if you're trying to do CMHC, you need a certain portion of that building to be residential. Um, so it was a good learning experience, but um, I still buy them today because I, I like the, there's no landlord tenant board involved, right, for the commercial units. Um, and you can kind of do what you need to in terms of rent increases. You can put that on the lease. And essentially, if they're not paying rent, you can pretty much take over that unit, right? So I think when you did the conversion is also pretty key, right? Because you were able to buy it. You weren't too concerned about the fact that, I guess the first question is, did you know that you could convert it to residential? Um, and then the second is, you went in there, you tried renting it out commercial. Like you said, vacancy can be pretty fucked in the commercial world, right? So then, you know, how did you go? What's the rezoning process from commercial to residential? Because I think most people know single family to, to duplex, triplex, whatever. Like that's pretty standard, right? But what did it look like here? Yeah, yeah that's quite a quite a process, honestly. Um, especially if you're not working with the right people. At that time, I didn't have those relationships, right? Um, we're, we're doing another one as well. And it's, it's been like a year and a half just in engineering and zoning. Rezoning itself, like you need a... Uh, zoning bylaw amendments, you need you know, to go over the official plan and um, you need a designer, engineer, city planner. So if you're, if you're not working with the right professionals, it take a lot longer. And um, yeah, that, that process, you got to be willing to spend money too, right? I mean, just an engineering rezoning piece from the city. And I was in like 20K. And at that point, I'm like, is this worth it? Because I'm going to renovate this entire unit and spend another 20K. But at the end of the day, there's just so much more demand there. And essentially that commercial unit already had separate uh, utility, separate furnace, central air, all that. So it was really, it's a very attractive unit for a tenant. Um, and with the lack of parking, it just made more sense um, to convert to residential. But I wouldn't go through the rezoning process just because of timelines, especially when you have investors and then you and you're like, you know what, the specific timelines on this, we have to meet those timelines and, and uh, projections. I probably wouldn't do it because I can control the city, how long they're taking, um, with certain things, right? Especially during COVID, it's like everything's delayed. So did you convert the entire building from mixed use to residential or just that one unit that couldn't be rented out? Yeah, the one unit. Um, actually applied for the second one as well, just in case down the road I wanted to convert it. So that's already there. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm not doing too much of that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was, good. it was a good experience. And it's, it's an option, right? If you're in a dead commercial zone, you know, and the city's 
needs these affordable housing units, they, they should be encouraging to make the process a lot quicker, but at the end of the day, like there is going to be demand always for residential. One more question before we move off of this topic of the rezoning. Is it not always a guarantee? So as you go through the process at any time, they might reject it. And then you spent a year and you're back to square one or not necessarily? Yeah, I mean, I mean that happens, but you have to do a pre-submission. And that's the first process. And that that's like consultation with the city pretty much to see if it's doable, right? And then with that kind of, you can eliminate some of the back and forth. Gotcha. Awesome. And let's, let's talk about, um, kind of the other projects you did from there. So you have your seven unit, um, where do you go from here and are you buying these on the market still? Or are you sourcing them off market? Yeah. The, um, from there, I still, I kept buying on MLS just cause there was at that time a lot of supply on MLS. I was buying a uh, couple eight units, 12 unit on MLS. And then from there after that, it's been all off market. The last like, three, four five deals have been all off market. And that's pretty much just because um, I've been in the city, you know, investing in that city for a while and you just build relationships, right? So from there, it's just now, now it's more focused on mostly residential. I will buy mixed use, larger properties now. Um, and I'm, you know, obviously partnering with people as well. So it just makes more sense to scale, to so just go into larger assets. And then also um, in terms of that, like just finding deals, it's been honestly just like me, I'm putting the word out to as many people as I can, right? Just talking to plumbers, trades, uh, property managers, literally anybody I come in contact with, they know what I'm doing. So they'll bring a lead. Like my last deal was from my client's technician. And um, that turned out to be a really good deal, like 100% BTB. Just different people in the city, like even my camera, the guy who does my cameras, he brought me a lead as well. So the leads are coming. And then you also have to do your own sourcing. Like your own sourcing would be reaching out directly to owners, scrubbing like a MLS list. So I'll get like a realtor every month to pull a list from MLS of like 20 plus unit buildings that have been uh, sold in the last like 15, 20 years. And just having that list, we'll work with the list. And he'll either go back to the agent who last sold it, or like we'll do the um, reaching out ourselves. Like we'll just mail the owners. You can get the owner's address from the city. Uh, you can book an appointment with the city and get, you know, the, the mailing address from the corporation. Um, in search impact lists. There's so many different ways to do it. There's rental ads on like Facebook marketplace. That's been a huge um, lead source as well. Like if you just spend, let's say every month, just reach out to like 15, 20 Facebook market ads. And some of them won't be landlords, right? Some of them might be um, property Probably managers or whatever, right? Um, or leasing companies. Um, but that's a really good lead source as well. I love that. I guess before we, we go deeper on that, I just, it sounds like you're applying a lot of the same off-market um, funnels that people would for single-family houses as well with slight variations and twists to target the bigger apartment buildings, right? Uh, but I guess you did quite a few of the, what do you call them, like smaller multis, like the 8 and 12, like the the, the more, I guess, uh, relatable side of things, right? Um, so so what's the difference in going from 8 and 12 units to like the bigger buildings, right? Like what's the, what's the major challenges that you've been seeing um, and even going from the single family to these like eight to 12 unit apartment buildings, what was the main issue that you found? Was it capital? Was it, I guess, financing like refinances, I'm sure it took longer, right? Um, what are kind of some of the major differences that you saw? Cause you've kind of gone single family duplexes to now eight to 12 to now bigger than 12, I guess. Right. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the challenge obviously is the mindset of it. Like the larger the deal, the more money you'll need. Um, especially if you're not, you know, this whole owner needs to raise capital. That's the whole mindset shift as well. 
Um, that was probably the biggest thing, just the amount of capital we needed. And it's relatively not that much capital if you're comparing to like what people are buying in the GTA and extended GTA. Um, so that was that was the biggest thing. Um, but honestly, the the rest of it is actually easier because the financing is actually easier. Me being self-employed, it was actually harder for me to get residential properties mm-hmm. and refinance residential properties than it is commercial. Well, these are considered commercial or anything over five units. So, you know, the pretty much the main thing they're looking for is like your net worth. So I was able to build that to a point. So it's kind of just using my net worth from the single families and the smaller properties to help me qualify for these larger assets. And then if you bring on a partner that, you know, has owned a home in Toronto, there you go, right? There's your net worth. Um, you know, you're really not looking at your personal income, looking at the property's income, debt service ratio there, um, and your overall credit, but like not really your income. That's where it got easier, but the challenge I think was the, the biggest thing was the mindset because people were sending us, you guys probably saw it too, like in 2017, 2018, my realtors were sending me these 30 unit buildings. I was like, well, I can't do that. It's it's 1.2 million, right? For 32 units is like crazy. I would be jumping at that now, right? So even if I just got started at that time, but you know, my head wasn't there to raise capital and I wasn't educated enough on that as well. But you have to also build your own credibility as well so that was an experience too but yeah, so when you mindset as well when you're going about raising capital for, for larger apartment buildings are you doing it very similar to how people do um like a single family house where capital partner 50 percent, active partner 50 percent, or is the structure a little bit different and have you gone as far as going like the gplp yet or what's the difference yeah, yeah so i mean there's so many ways to, to structure it I'm, i've done i've done pretty much all that what you mentioned like 50 50 30, 70, 60, 40, 45, 55, and a different structure. Like, you know, maybe I won't take any profit unless the capital investors pay back or it's quicker burr, then I will. There's acquisition fee. So we have acquisition fee, asset management fee, disposition fee, hmm. where we get paid in the, in the meantime, doing the property management and everything as well. Um, but yeah, the structure has just been different. It could be JV partners, it could be, you know, two or three shareholders corporation mm. um, in terms of GPLP looking at that now we're working on a building right now the 27 unit in Windsor as well and looking at that but honestly if there's not that many partners um, obviously there's things you can and cannot do just in terms of raising capital you have to be careful about but um, GPLP structure I'm, I'm going to be implementing that in the states I'm looking into that as well into larger assets and that at that point there will be you know, more than five, six, seven, eight investors. And, you know, in order for you to take smaller dollar amounts and, you know, raise, and raise capital properly, you'd have to put that in place. So just working on that in the States, uh, that structure, setting it up. But here for now, typically just a holding corporation and then joint venture or shareholder agreement. Gotcha. And so that's interesting. So now you, you're seeing the opportunity, I guess, going towards the States, like what's driving you out there. Um, and, and I guess now, how do things now change going from bigger apartment buildings in Canada to bigger apartment buildings in the U S yeah. I mean, it's, it's a different game, right. But I think what's kind of uh, taking me there is there's way more supply. First of all, right. That's one thing. Second of all, like, you know, if I'm investing in Ontario, I have a landlord tenant board to worry about. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So as you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to turn over units. And especially now when the seller's price expectation is so high and you have no guaranteed way to meet your projection your exit unless you're right. doing i mean cash for keys is working but it's getting harder and harder and also um 
uh, yeah, just like turning over the units in general, right? So over there, we have more supply um, and you can turn over units pretty quickly so you can you know, meet your return objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what's uh, taking me there. And and I'd obviously pick state by state there as well, right? So you have to choose landlords, friendly states, where there's a good supply. Uh, and I'm just looking at the market fundamentals there. But overall, like, you know, there's over here, if you're looking at 50 plus units, you might be competing with a REIT. Over there, it's just like an average owner as it, you know, mom and pop style, or, you know, we're not really dealing with larger hedge funds and whatnot, right? Yeah, no, that's very interesting that you mentioned that. That was one thing I was having difficulty in understanding in the multifamily space in Ontario specifically is how do you meet your projections, right? Because nothing, there's so much uncertainty and risk in Ontario when it comes to turning over tenants, as you were saying, you might budget 10 or 15K for cash for keys per unit, but someone might come up and say, I want 35 or 40K, which is not unusual. Um, If people see what, if they're renting like at half of market rents, they may ask for something incredibly high. And there's just no exact certainty. The timeline is even more kind of blurry as well. Cause yeah, you can turn over, let's say in two years, which is not likely of that magnitude, but it could take five years and it could even take seven or eight years, right? Like there's no guaranteed certainty because there are a lot of things that you have influence on, but not direct control over and facilitating. So I like that you're moving over to the States because when you calculate your numbers, you can actually like reliably figure out what you can do to reach those numbers by turning over tenants, by increasing rents, right? Like it's just all projectable on a spreadsheet and there's less uncertainty there, uh, uncertainties there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, over here, like unless you're getting the vacancies and negotiating goes up front, it's difficult to guarantee that this, this tenant's going to take over, you know, take your cash for keys or, you know, get evic- evicted. I mean, that's, that's another story that might not even happen for two years. Right. So, so you have to be very careful. Um, and also like at the same time, don't get me wrong, I'm still going to be doing deals in Windsor because, you know, my team is there and everything. Um, but it's more now trying to get my terms versus price point. I mean, it's, it's difficult to negotiate as much, but you can negotiate on the terms like ETBs are doing a lot of those seller financing. So if you're not getting your price, you get your terms and that will help the deal kind of push it along uh, over the timeline of investment. So you can meet your objectives, right? Yeah. I, I think in this market, you pretty much need to get VTBs because like yeah. at the rent rolls that you're seeing in these apartment buildings, you're qualifying mostly for 50 or 60% LTV because like it just, the yeah. debt service isn't, isn't really there. Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of uh, like, I mean, either you're going to put like 35% down or you need an interest only VTB um, until you can turn over at least a few units. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like to try to ask for as much as I can from the seller. Um, and it, when it's off market, you do have the opportunity. When you're on MLS and you're in a bidding war, you can't really do much. But when it's just between you and the seller, that's when you can create that relationship and, and negotiate a lot, a lot more, right? And so when you're going into the U.S. here, like, and now you're getting that landscape, I, I know a lot of people struggle with financing on the residential side. I'm wondering, like, on the commercial side, are you basically just like getting the same terms as a U.S. individual would, or are you? finding that this Canadian like non-resident stuff is kind of messing up the financing there. Cause that's probably what's um, holding me back the most. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's always there. Like at the end of the day, you have, you'll have an LLC, but that LLC is owned by a foreign international. So that always comes up. But when you're into larger assets, we're kind of like commercial financing here and you might pay like a percent more as a Canadian, you know, when they're doing all the credit and all that, but 
when you're in a large asset, that really doesn't matter as much. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I've seen, like really, I'm working with a broker down there who's pretty much asset based lending, right? Um, yeah. And then kind of they're they're able to use your portfolio and your history here as well. Um, but you just have to make those relationships with people. And then when you, when you're a big player, there you know get into your first couple of deals when you're when you're making money and you have corporation and you have income, then it's not a big deal. Residential, it's always going to be difficult, right? It's always going to be difficult. Residential, commercial, not as much. Also working on like building another business on the side there that shows that I have income and then potentially, you know, spending some time there with, with investment into the country. So that'll help as well. Sorry, you said you have to spend time in the U.S. showing investment into that country to kind of improve the overall. Yeah, I mean, that's just that's just what I'm doing because I want to be like more mobile in life and just you know go where I want to go. So I'm working on just some passive businesses that I can do there as well. Um, okay. Because, you know, I, I don't know about the whole immigration stuff. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't looked into all that, but I know like building credit there is important if I want to start buying, even on the residential side. Right. But I know the commercial side, like pretty straightforward. It's mostly asset-based lending. Now talking about the U.S., like there's obviously, because I know that's kind of where you're looking at now and, and, and what you're doing, right? So um, obviously there's multiple different markets, multiple different um like what are you looking for in the US, right? LTV or, or landlord landlord rules, I guess would be one of the things, right? But um, when you evaluate these markets and where to invest in, I think it's usually like a little bit of a trade-off between coastal cities that are more popular with a little bit better of an economy versus interstates, which are a little bit more blue collar, right? So like, how are you kind of deciding where to go into? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, every state is so different, the rules, mm-hmm. the laws, everything. Uh, the climates too, right? I mean, I think everyone's making that push for Florida right now, just as a lifestyle a decision. So that that's honestly like the prices aren't that far off from Ontario now. Like the cap rates under five now. You know, people are buying four in Florida. Cap, so you can, yeah. Oh wow. So so that's not really. I mean, I'm not really looking too much there. Um, although it'd be nice to buy a property there and have like an Airbnb on the side as well. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, states like Texas and then like there's Georgia, and then you could go to the Midwest like Ohio and things like that, where the climate, like you're still getting winters and all that. I'm trying to stay in the warmer climates at the same time. It has to be landlord friendly and they're not in like the major metros, right? They're outside of the major metros. I'm not like in Austin, Texas or Dallas or anything like that. I'll I'll look them further out, maybe San Antonio or other pockets in Texas. So looking at some deals, I haven't decided on a a market yet, just yet, but just kind of just doing the groundwork from here until I can kind of be boots on the ground. I know your early stages in here as well. So I don't, I don't want to ask you too many questions about this. Right. But are these essentially like when you buy in the U S do you have to personally guarantee everything or is it limited liability to your corpse? Do you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely going to be doing the GPLP structure there. So I'm sure like when I'm starting, I'll have to personally guarantee it. Mm. Um, unless it's, you know, cash flowing property that meets the bank's criteria there. But yeah, I mean, I'm assuming when I first start, I'll have to guarantee quite a bit on the personal side. How are you getting the confidence to, to move over to the States? Do you have any boots on the ground there right now? Are you in some sort of mentorship program? Are you in some sort of community of investors investing in the States? Like how are you going about building your power team and getting, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, a little bit of both. So I have invested in the States before. So I do have my entities also out there. I did flips and first over there, like in the Midwest and Florida in the past. So I also invested passively in a, in a syndication with an operator who does like, they have like a thousand units now. And so well, my deal with them was like, you know, if I invest passively, are you able to kind of just like 
tag me along on certain things and like kind of just built that relationship with them and like kind of exposed me to how it works, how syndication in the States work. And then, yeah, I've also been in networks, uh, you know, people who are investing heavily in the States or even the Wealth Genius Group, which is, you know, they're doing a massive amount of deals here in Canada, but they've now partnered with people doing deals in the States. So there's going to be like a group of us doing this, won't be doing it alone. Definitely a lot of people are making the shift there. So definitely just leaning on their experience, especially in the multifamily space. Because like I said, I've done the residential there, you know how that works. And uh, multifamily being new for me to own personally. Um, so just kind of just leaning on their experience and, and kind of just doing it as together, right? Yeah, not to like jump back and forth here, but I, I think we kind of skated over the fact that I, I did think you alluded to it before as well. Like, so you were investing before in the U.S., Sounds like you were doing flips and kind of birds as well there, right? So, uh, what happened there? Like, how was that experience? It was it was good. I mean, it was a lot of um, prepping money. Like, it was just partnering with a wholesaler who had access to deals. Um, and um, yeah, it was difficult being you know remote at the time. For your actually, that was my first couple of flips. Like in general, like I didn't even flip in Windsor. I went straight flipping in states. Oh. Um, and yeah, definitely like. I was, it was kind of just relying on bigger pockets, relationships, like find the number one flipper in this city, build a relationship, go meet him, go there and then see what it's all about. And then, um, in terms of like the actual business of flipping, like I kind of relied on someone who was doing it and had their own crew and then, you know, just sharing Google drive and, and videos and things like that to learn the process. Um, so that was a great learning experience. The profit on those were, were decent. It wasn't great. Um, it wasn't like a crazy market at that time. Um, so you're really forcing the appreciation. It wasn't just any market appreciation. You're forcing it through renovations, but it was a good learning experience. Like, were you doing it right in the U S like in Detroit, like on the other side of Windsor or were you? No, no, I, was, I was in Florida at the time, Florida. And then a little bit in the Midwest, like, uh, in Pittsburgh. And so it was all over the place, like from 2016 to 20, 2017, Friday, 2019, just like doing random stuff flips, wholesale deals in, in Windsor, just a lot of different things until I was like, okay, multifamily is the way to go. Now, now that I've kind of tapped into the U S market, I'm like, you know what, it's an opportunity now. Well, it's probably a opportunity, better opportunity then, but you know, hindsight it's fine. You know, I'll just start there now and now have experience in multifamily. So that will help directly with that. Okay. Last question before I, I, I move on to kind of asking you the two questions. So, uh, being in the multifamily space, ultimately like valuations are driven by cap rates, right? Um, do you see any risks to the multifamily strategy? And if so, what do you think they are and how are you guys kind of like mitigating them? Yeah. I mean, so a lot of people are worried, right? I mean, residential side, I mean, it's obvious, right? Everything is based on comparables, right? But in the multifamily space, like, obviously relying on the income approach and also the price, like price per door obviously matters as well. So I don't, I don't think cap rates, you know, in like the major cities are going to be, you know, increasing too much. You know, I think we're on a steady curve of that because like I said, like in terms of any kind of economic downturn, yeah. Multifound has been the most stable asset, right? When, when there's a, a downturn and people are losing jobs or, you know, losing their homes where they go and they're actually just renting, None of our units are, let's say, over $1,600 a month, right? So it's still very affordable. But obviously, there's the risk there, as always, um, like the the, uh, the tenancy risk, right? Like in terms of you can't turn over the units, so what are you going to do, right? And if you got into a bad asset, 
over leverage and um, you're not cash flowing. I mean, people are doing that, right? People are buying assets like that um, without doing due diligence and just firm on buildings. So that's always the risk. Maybe you're not getting into the correct asset and then over leverage too. Um, but I don't, I don't honestly think that the multifamily space is going anywhere. It's always been stable asset and hasn't really gone the same way as the single family market. So I think cap rates, you know, let's say there's something terribly wrong happens, cap rates might go up a bit, but I think there's so much money getting pushed into these assets as a safe haven that, um, I don't, I don't see much, uh, like movement in the, in the prices there. I guess investors are more rational, right? So they're not going to let go of assets when prices are going down, especially cash flow multis. They'll just, they'll just sit on it. So less supply, they're not, not actively selling it. So Mm -hmm. it's hard for cap rates to go up. It's not as easy. Let's, let's put it this way. It's not as easy for the valuations to change as it would. So on the residential side where you have your average mom and pops, just selling things at a low price because they're motivated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Zishan. So usually at this point in the podcast, we like to ask our guests two questions. The first is uh, where you see yourself five years from now. Um, yeah, so definitely, like I said, uh, more of a mobile lifestyle, like, you know, traveling a lot more and, uh, you know, I'd like to tap into the States, build a passive income. Obviously we all have goals in terms of like net worth income and all that kind of stuff for portfolio value that, you know, I have those numbers, but in terms of overall, just, just focusing on maybe more of a passive lifestyle, um, building, you know, outsourcing a lot more just in everyday life, not only in the business, but in everyday life as well. And then continue to grow the portfolio, get into newer assets. Like in Windsor, you know, those assets, you know, some of them are like built 1920s, 1940s. So there's a lot of maintenance and headache with those. So maybe just get into newer assets, solid brick buildings and uh, grow the portfolio while also being the center. I don't have to be as hands-on. Yeah. you development you're thinking? Uh, eventually development. Yeah. I mean, people usually end with that, but if you can get started with that now, I know a lot of younger investors are starting with that mm-hmm. and getting the bigger payouts. Right. I'm trying to do, trying to work that in as well. I mean, I don't want to do it as a spec- speculative play more as in like, you know, learn how it's done, partner with somebody and get into a good project that way. For sure. Okay, man. And for any newer investors or even experienced investors in today's market, um, what do you see as being one of the main risks right now? Could be anything political. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think right now there's, there's a lot of right now, there's a lot of FOMO, there's a lot of chasing unit counts. There's a lot of chasing deals. I see that as a risk, like, especially people in real estate just starting, they're just like so hungry for the deal. They might just get into any asset, you know, take on maybe too much private money, get over leveraged, like, like I'm trying to keep my portfolio LTVs like under 70%. And so newer investors, you know, it's not the same market where you can burn, just pick up with market appreciation. So you just got to be wary of that. And also, yeah, just don't chase a deal, right. For just for the sake of doing a deal, newer investors are maybe not just very hungry for a deal. And they have the FOMO, they see, especially with online, see you guys killing it, doing all these deals. And, and so they want to get involved. So they'll just kind of do anything that and then also like i said the the risk overall i think the market is interest rate risk for residential side really obviously commercial rates were used to seeing a little bit higher rates anyways so when we're underwriting we're already very conservative so we just got to make sure we do the same on on residential for buying that as well what are you underwriting at right now like five percent over five for sure um yeah i mean that's what the banks are underwriting at 
But like, you know, people who got in like during COVID, you're getting CMAC rates at like 1.2. On multifamily? Yeah. CMAC for multifamily is just, it's still low. Like it's still relatively low, but you know, we're looking, there were times where you could get in fixed debt for like five or 10 years at one, 1.4, and then 40 year amortization. So your cash flow is crazy. If you just fix that, you know, obviously we're doing burrs, right? So we don't want to fix too long of a term, but, but yeah, you can't use those kind of rates anymore. Even with CMHC, you can't even qualify yourself with those rates. For sure. Yeah. Really appreciate you jumping on Zichan. Definitely learned a lot. Really aspiring to see you grow. Um, I don't know if you remember, but when I started off investing in Windsor, we connected at the Wind City real estate event and you were someone I really looked up to because like you left your full-time job. I remember that time when we first chatted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you were probably only a couple months like full-time into real estate and I was like, shit, I want to get there. So it's awesome to see you continue growing, man. And uh, yeah, man, like I, I'm excited to see you make that transition to the States when you do so, when you crush it there, we need to have you back on the podcast and why you can ask another 10 or 15 questions on the US, but uh, love it, man. And if people want to reach out to you, connect with you, how could they do so? Awesome, man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, I just just online and got a website, uh, ourproperties.ca, you got my Instagram, Facebook. So it's all just my team. Find me there, reach out to me. Do some, do some coaching through Wealth Genius as well. So if you want to connect me and us to get into multifamily space, and they can connect me with that and connect them with Wealth Genius as well. So. Yeah. Well, Genius yeah. is Alfonso's uh, coaching group, right? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're a coach under the program as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. So, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So just coaching students there kind of want to get involved in multifamily. They might already have a portfolio of single families and they want to happen to the multifamily space. Um, so we do that as well. Yeah, so if you guys are interested in multifamilies and looking to make that transition there, make sure to hit up Zishan. And all of his information will be down in the show notes below. Until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care.